0: The Fairy of Strasbourg, a German folktale. Once, long ago, near the ancient city of Strasbourg on the River Rhine, lived a young and handsome count whose name was Otto. As the years flew by, he remained unwed and never so much as cast a glance at the fair maidens of the county around him. For this reason, his people began to call him Stoneheart. It chanced that Otto, on one Christmas Eve, ordered that a great hunt should take place in the forest surrounding his castle. He and his guests and his many retainers rode forth, and the chase became more and more exciting. It led through thickets and over pathless tracts of forests, until at length Count Otto found himself separated from his companions. He rode on by himself until he came to a spring of clear, bubbling water, known to the people around as the Fairy Well. Here Count Otto dismounted. He bent over the spring and began to wash his hands in the sparkling tide, But to his wonder he found that though the weather was cold and frosty, the water was warm and delightfully caressing. He felt a glow of joy pass through his veins, and, as he plunged his hands deeper, he fancied that his right hand was grasped by another, soft and small, which gently slipped from his finger the gold ring which he always wore. And lo, when he drew out his hand, the golden ring was gone. Full of wonder at this mysterious event, the count mounted his horse and returned to his castle, resolving that the very next day he would have the fairy well emptied by his servant so that he might find his ring. He retired to his room, and throwing himself just as he was upon his couch, tried to sleep, but the strangeness of his adventure kept him restless and wakeful. Suddenly, he heard the hoarse baying of the watchhounds in the courtyard, and then the creaking of the drawbridge as though it were being lowered. Then came to his ear the patter of many small feet on the stone staircase and next he heard indistinctly the sound of light footsteps in the chamber adjoining his own Count Otto sprung from his couch and as he did so there sounded a strain of delicious music and the door of his chamber was flung open hurrying into the next room he found himself in the midst of numberless fairy beings clad in gay and sparkling robes they paid him no heed but began to dance, and laugh, and sing to the sound of the mysterious music. In the center of the apartment stood a splendid Christmas tree, the first ever seen in that country. Instead of toys and candles, there hung on its lighted boughs, diamond stars, pearl necklaces, bracelets of gold ornamented with colored jewels, Agrits of ruby and sapphires, silken belts embroidered with oriental pearls, and daggers mounted in gold and studded with the rarest gems. The whole tree swayed, sparkled and glittered in the radiance of its many lights. Count Otto stood speechless, gazing at all this wonder, when suddenly the fairies stopped dancing and fell back to make room for a lady of dazzling beauty who came slowly toward him. She wore on her raven black tresses a golden diadem set with jewels. Her hair flowed down upon a robe of rosy satin and creamy velvet. She stretched out two small white hands to the Count and addressed him in sweet, alluring tones. "'Dear Count Otto,' she said, "'I come to return your Christmas visit. "'I am Ernestine, the Queen of Fairies, and I bring you something you lost in the fairy well. As she spoke, she drew from her bosom a golden casket, set with diamonds, and placed it in his hands. He opened it eagerly and found within his lost golden ring. Carried away by the wonder of it all, and overcome by an irresistible impulse, the Count pressed the fairy Ernestine to his heart, while she, taking him by the hand, drew him into the magic mazes of the dance. The mysterious music floated through the room and the rest of the fairy company circled and whirled around the fairy queen and count Otto and then gradually dissolved into a mist of many colors leaving the count and his beautiful guest alone then the young man forgetting all his former coldness toward maidens fell on his knees before the fairy and besought her to become his bride at last she consented but on the condition that he would never speak the word death in her presence. The next day, the wedding of Count Otto and Ernestine, the Queen of Fairies, was celebrated with great pomp and magnificence, and the two continued to live happily for many years. But now it happened, that the Count and his fairy wife were to hunt in the forest around the castle. The horses were saddled and bridled and standing at the door. The company was waiting, and the Count paced the hall in great impatience, But still, the fairy Ernestine tarried long in her chamber. At length, she appeared at the hall, and the Count addressed her in anger. "'You've kept us waiting so long,' cried he, "'that you would make a good messenger sent for death.' Scarcely had he spoken the forbidden and fatal word, when the fairy, uttering a wild cry, vanished from his sight. In vain, Count Otto, overwhelmed with grief and remorse, searched the castle at the fairy well. No trace could be found of his beautiful lost wife, but the imprint of her delicate hand set in the stone arch above the castle gate. Years passed by, and the fairy Ernestine did not return. The count continued to grieve. Every Christmas Eve, he set up a lighted tree in the room where he had first met the fairy, hoping in vain that it would tempt her to return to him. Time passed and the count died. The castle fell into ruins, but to this day may be seen above the massive gate deeply sunken in the stone arch, the impress of a small and delicate hand. And such, say the good folk of Strasbourg, was the origin of the Christmas tree.
1: The Ghost of the Blue Chamber by Jerome K. Jerome I don't want to make you fellows nervous, began my uncle in a peculiarly impressive, not to say blood-curdling tone of voice, and if you would rather that I did not mention it, I won't. But as a matter of fact, this very house in which we are now sitting is haunted "'You don't say that!' exclaimed Mr. Coombs. "'What's the use of your saying I don't say it when I've just said it?' retorted my uncle, somewhat annoyed. "'You talk so foolishly. "'I tell you, the house is haunted regularly. "'On Christmas Eve, the blue chamber they call the room next to the nursery, "'the blue chamber at my uncle's, is haunted by the ghost of a sinful man. "'A man!' who once killed a Christmas carol-singer with a lump of coal. ''Oh, how did he do it?'' asked Mr. Coombs eagerly. ''Was it difficult?'' ''I do not know how he did it,'' replied my uncle. ''He did not explain the process. The singer had taken up a position just outside the front gate and was singing a ballad. It is presumed that when he opened his mouth for a B-flat The lump of coal was thrown by the sinful man from one of the windows, and it went down the singer's throat and choked him. "'You want to be a good shot, but it is certainly worth trying,' murmured Mr. Coombs thoughtfully. "'But that was not his only crime, alas,' added my uncle. "'Prior to that, he had killed a solo cornet player.' "'No. Is that really a fact?' exclaimed Mr. Coombs. Of course it's a fact, answered my uncle testily. All events, as much a fact as you can expect to get in a case of this sort. Hmm, the poor fellow, the cornet player, had been in the neighbourhood barely a month. Old Mr Bishop, who kept the jolly sandboys at the time, and from whom I had the story, he said he had never known a more hard-working and energetic solo cornet player. He, the cornet player, only knew two tunes, but Mr. Bishop said that the man could not have played with more vigour, or for more hours a day, if he had known forty. The two tunes he did play were Annie Laurie and Home Sweet Home, and as regard his performance of the former melody, Mr. Bishop said that a mere child could have told what it was meant for. This musician, this poor, friendless artist, used to come regularly and play in this street, just opposite, for two hours every evening. One evening he was seen, evidently in response to an invitation, going to this very house, but he was never seen coming out of it. Oh, did the townsfolk try offering any reward for his recovery? asked Mr. Coombs, not a ''Kenny,'' replied my uncle. ''Another summer,'' continued my uncle, ''a German band visited here, intending,'' ''so they announced on their arrival, to stay until the autumn. On the second day after their arrival, the whole company, as fine and healthy a body of men as one would wish to see, were invited to dinner by this sinful man, and after spending the whole of the next twenty-four hours in bed,'' left the town a broken and dyspeptic crew, the parish doctor who had attended them, giving it as his opinion that it was doubtful if they would, any of them, be fit to play an air again. "'You... you don't know the recipe, do you?' asked Mr Coombs. "'Unfortunately, I do not,' replied my uncle, but the chief ingredient was said to have been railway dining room hash. "'I forget the man's other crimes,' my uncle went on. "'I used to know them all at one time, but my memory is not what it was. "'I do not, however, believe I am going his memory an injustice "'in believing that he was not entirely unconnected with the death "'and subsequent burial of a gentleman who used to play the harp with his toes.'" and that neither was he altogether unresponsible for the lonely grave of an unknown stranger who had once visited the neighbourhood, an Italian peasant lad of some sort, a performer upon the barrel organ. "'Merry Christmas Eve,' said my uncle. Cleaving with low impressive tones, the strange odd silence that, like a shadow, seemed to have only stolen into and settled down upon the room. "'The Ghost,' of this sinful man, haunts the blue chamber in this very house. There, from midnight until the cockcrow, amid wild muffled shrieks and groans and mocking laughter and the ghostly sound of horrid blows, it does fierce phantom fight with the spirits of the solo cornet player and the murdered carol-singer, assisted at intervals by the shades of the German band, while the ghost of the strangled harpist plays mad ghostly melodies with ghostly toes on the ghost of a broken harp. Uncle said that the blue chamber was comparatively useless as a sleeping apartment on Christmas Eve. Hark! said my uncle, raising a warning hand toward the ceiling while we all held our breath and listened. Hark! I believe they are at it now, in the blue chamber. I, of course, rose up and said that I would sleep in the blue chamber. Never, cried my uncle, springing up. You shall not put yourself in this deadly peril. Besides, the bed is not made. Never mind the bed, I replied. I have lived in furnished apartments for gentlemen, and have been accustomed to sleep on beds that have never been made from one year's end to the other. I'm young, and I've got a clear conscience now for over a month. The spirits will not harm me. I may even do them some little good and induce them to be quiet and go away. Besides, I should like to see the show. They, of course, tried to dissuade me from what they termed my foolhardy enterprise, but I remained firm and claimed my privilege. I was the guest. The guest always sleeps in the haunted chamber on Christmas Eve. It is his right. They said that if I put on that footing, they had, of course, no answer, and they lighted a candle for me and followed me upstairs in a body. Whether elevated by the feeling that I was doing a noble action or animated by a mere general consciousness of rectitude, it's not for me to say, but I went upstairs that night with remarkable buoyancy. It was as much as I could do to stop at the landing when I came to it. I felt I wanted to Go on up to the roof, but with the help of the banisters I restrained my ambition, wished them all a good night, and went in and shut the door. Things began to go wrong with me from the very first. The candle tumbled out of the candlestick before my hand was off the lock. I kept on tumbling out again, I never saw such a slippery candle, I gave up attempting to use the candlestick at last and carried the candle itself about in my hand, and even then it would not keep upright. I got so wild and threw it out the window and undressed and went to bed in the dark. I did not go to sleep though, I did not feel sleepy at all, I lay on my back looking up at the ceiling and thinking of things. I wish I could remember some of the ideas that came to me as I lay there because they were so amusing. I had been lying like this for half an hour or so and had forgotten all about the ghosts when on casually casting my eyes around the room I noticed for the first time a singularly contented-looking phantom sitting in the easy chair by the fire smoking the ghost of a long clay pipe I fancied for a moment, as most people would under similar circumstances, that I must be dreaming. I sat up and rubbed my eyes, but no, it was a ghost, clear enough. I could see the back of the chair through his body. He looked over toward me, took the shadowy pipe from his lips, and nodded. The most surprising part of the whole thing to me was that I did not feel in the least alarmed. If anything, I was rather pleased to see him. "'It was company.' "'I said to him, "'Good evening. "'It's been a cold day.' "'He said he had not noticed it himself, "'but dared say I was right.' "'We remained silent for a few seconds, "'and then, wishing to put it pleasantly, "'I said, "'I believe I have the honour of addressing "'the ghost of the gentleman "'who had the accident with the carol singer?' "'He smiled, "'and said it was very good of me to remember it. "'One singer was not much to boast of, But still, every little helped. I was somewhat staggered at his answer. I expected a groan of remorse. The ghost appeared, on the contrary, to be rather conceited over the business. I thought that as he had taken my reference to the singer so quietly, perhaps he would not be offended if I questioned him about the organ grinder. I felt curious about the poor boy. "'Is it true?' I asked." That you had a hand in the death of that Italian peasant lad who came to the town once with a barrel organ that played nothing but Scotch airs? He got quite fired up after that. Had a hand in it? He exclaimed indignantly. Who has dared to pretend that he assisted me? I murdered the youth myself. Nobody helped me. Alone I did it. Show me the man who says I didn't. I calmed him and assured him that I I had never, in my own mind, doubted that he was the real and only assassin, and I went on and asked him what he had done with the body of the cornet player he had killed. He said, To which one may you be alluding? Oh, there were any more then? I inquired. He smiled and gave a little cough. He said he did not like to appear to be boasting, but that counting trombones... "'There were seven. "'Oh, dear me,' I replied. "'You must have had quite a busy time of it one way and another.' "'He said that perhaps he ought to be the one way to say so, "'but that really, speaking of ordinary middle-class society, "'he thought there were few ghosts who could look back upon a life "'of more sustained usefulness.' "'He puffed away in silence for a few seconds while I sat watching him, I had never seen a ghost smoking a pipe before, well, that I could remember, and it interested me. I asked him what tobacco he used, and he replied, The ghost of a cut Cavendish, as a rule. He explained that the ghost of all the tobacco that a man smoked in life belonged to him when he became dead. He said he himself had smoked a good deal of cut Cavendish when he was alive, so that he was well supplied... With the ghost of it now i thought i would join him in a pipe and he said do old man and i reached over and got out the necessary paraphernalia from my coat and lit up we grew quite chummy after that and he told me all of his crimes he said that he had lived next door once to a young lady who was learning to play the guitar while a gentleman who practiced on the bass viol lived opposite and he with fiendish cunning, had introduced these two unsuspecting young people to one another, and had persuaded them to elope with each other against their parents' wishes, and take their musical instruments with them, and they had done so. And before the honeymoon was over, she had broken his head with the bass viol, and he had tried to cram the guitar down her throat, and had injured her for life. My friend said he used to lure muffin men into the passage and then stuff them with their own wares till they burst. He said he had quieted 18 muffin men that way. Young men and women who recited long and dreary poems at evening parties and callow youths who walked about the streets late at night playing concertinas, he used to get together in poison in batches of ten so as to save expense.' and park auditors and temperance lecturers, he used to shut up six in a small room with a glass of water and a collection box apiece and let them talk each other to death. It did one good to listen to him. I asked him when he expected the other ghosts, the ghosts of the singer and the cornet player and the German band that Uncle John had mentioned, he smiled and said they would never come again, any of them. I said, "'Why, is it true, then, that they meet you here every Christmas Eve for a row?' He explained that it was true. Every Christmas Eve for twenty-five years had he and they fought in that room, but they would never trouble him or anyone else again. One by one he had laid them out, spoiled, and made them utterly useless for all haunting purposes.' He had finished off the last German band ghost that very evening, just before I came upstairs and had thrown what was left out of it through the slit between the window sashes. He had said it would never be worth calling a ghost again. So I suppose you will still come yourself as usual, I said. That they would be sorry to miss you, I know. Oh, I don't know, he replied. There's nothing much to come for now. Unless, he added kindly, you are going to be here. I'll come if you sleep here next Christmas Eve. I've taken a liking to you, he continued. You don't fly off screeching when you see a party. And your hair doesn't stand on end. You've no idea, he said. How sick I am of seeing people's hair standing on end. He said it irritated him. Just then a slight noise reached us from the yard below, and he started and turned deathly black. You're ill, I cried, springing toward him. Tell me the best thing to do for you. Shall I drink some brandy and give you the ghost of it? He remained silent, listening intently for a moment, and then he gave a sigh of relief, and the shade came back to his cheek. It's all right, he murmured. I I was afraid it was the cock crowing. ''Oh, it's too early for that,'' I said. ''Why, it's only the middle of the night?'' ''Oh, that doesn't make any difference to those cursed chickens,'' he replied bitterly. ''They would just as soon crow in the middle of the night as at any other time. Sooner, if they thought it would spoil a chap's evening out. I believe they do it on purpose.'' He said a friend of his, the ghost of a man who had killed a tax collector... Used to haunt a house in Long Acre, where they kept fowls in the cellar, and every time a policeman went by and flashed his searchlight down the grating, the old cock there would fancy it was the sun and start crowing like mad. When, of course, the poor ghost had to dissolve, and it would, in consequence, get back to back, back home sometimes as early as one o'clock in the morning, furious because it had only been out for an hour. I agreed that it did seem very unfair. Oh, it's an absurd arrangement altogether, he continued quite angrily. I can't imagine what our chief could have been thinking of when he made it. As I have said to him over and over again, have a fixed time and let everybody stick to it, say four o'clock in the summer and six in the winter. Then one would know what one was about. But how do you manage when there isn't any clock handy? I inquired. He was on the point of replying when again he started and listened. This time I distinctly heard Mr. Bowles' cock. Next door, crow twice. There you are, he said, rising and reaching for his hat. That's the sort of thing we have to put up with. What time is it anyway? I looked at my watch and found it was half past three in the morning. I thought as much, he muttered. "'I'll wring that blessed bird's neck if I get a hold of it.' "'And he prepared to go. "'If you can wait half a minute,' I said, getting out of bed, "'I'll go a bit of the way with you.' "'Ah, that's very good of you,' he replied, pausing, "'but it seems unkind to drag you out.' "'No, not at all,' I replied. "'I shall like the walk.' "'And I partially dressed myself and took my umbrella.' And he put his arm through mine, and we went out together, the best of friends.
2: In this episode of Tales from New Babbage, Storgo McBain read the Fairy of Strasbourg, a traditional German folk tale adapted by J. Sterling Coyne, Victor First Mornington read The Ghost of the Blue Chamber from Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome, 1891. The music box selections were arranged and performed by Cannoli Cappellini. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. If you would like to read more about our city, the first edition of the and Chronicles, an illustrated steampunk adventure, is now available in electronic formats from Penny Gap Publications, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. We also have Tales of New Babbage, a collection of short stories written by the residents of the city in traditional paperback format. Copies are shipping now from Babbage Fiction Press. I hope everyone is having a very happy and restful Christmas day.
1: Hello folks, this is Victor Fast Mornington wishing all the listeners and everyone in the steamlands and Second Life a Merry Christmas and a happy prosperous new year.
2: Merry Christmas from Elian de Mosco. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Seasons greetings. Merry Christmas and happy new year from Satu Moreau. Fröhliche Weihnachten und einen guten Rutsch ins neue Jahr.
0: Happy holidays from Junie.
2: We're wishing everyone a wonderful holiday season and a very happy new year from Emerson Light
1: This is Edward Pierce. Hoping you and yours had a festive Yule celebration. And that Steam Santa and Boiler Elf brought you
2: lots of coal. Goodbye, Yoloaf from Finland. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, New Babbage. Happy Holidays from McKnight Cul-de-Sac, Uncle Mac, and Martin Day at Clockwork Music. And Toys. And Toys. Thank you, Martin. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from the Melniks. Salutations, everyone. This is
1: Professor Lionheart wishing you a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Sweet Dreams. Hey, Steampunks. This is Gadget. Have a fantastic Christmas and an awesome new year. It's been a good one. Let's make it better. And don't forget, if you've got any
2: brains, I'll look after them for you in a nice shiny jar of formaldehyde. Just send them to the freak house. Bye. Tales from New Babbage is produced for Radio Real by the citizens of the city-state of New Babbage and is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0, attribution, non-commercial, share alike. Keep building.